0: We I, I'm, I'm excited for this series because this is one of the most misunderstood oh, uh, great books of the Bible. We're going to be spending six weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes looking at this, a book that was once considered in the medieval church too dangerous to be read out loud. Like you had to be a senior graduate of whatever they set up, and then you could read it. Uh, it's just... It is a book that uses pessimism and the severity of life to make a really powerful point, and I'm really excited to read it. We're looking at uh, what it, this whole series is going to be about, Chasing the Wind, a Life Wasted. We, uh, I work here, but I also have a part-time job. I work with my dad. We work at Emirates International, and what we do is we move really big, heavy stuff. So if it can't get moved normal, you can't lift it normal, you call in a company like Emirates to do it. And we were receiving a load one time at the port of L.A., and they were—they were, we don't take custody till it's on the ground and off the ship, but it's very customary to be there during the offload. So my dad's standing there, his friend Greg is standing with him from work, and there's a few other people at the port. And they're watching this multi-million dollar super load get lifted off with one of those giant cranes at the port of L.A. And they're watching it. And this echoey sound starts to happen. It sounds like tick, 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 tick. And everybody's standing there, and they're looking at it. And, And from Greg's perspective, he says he's looking at it. He's hearing that sound. And he goes, Mark, what's that sound? And he looks. My dad is gone. He's 20 yards behind him, and he is booking it as fast as he can. And Greg was like, I had no idea your dad can run like that. Dude's got wheels. So he's moving and moving. And they're like, well, geez, we better run, too. So they start running. And what it is is that my dad's been doing this since he was in high school, and he said that the steel cables, what happens is they start to do a thing called talking. Talking is this ticking sound they make as the little wires inside the steel rope are snapping off. With every snap, that chain, or that uh, linkage, wire, rope, steel cable, whatever you want to call it, it becomes capable of holding less and less weight. And so the ticking speeds up, and the thing will unload itself. Uh, if you, what the, the solution is, is that when you hear it, you stop putting the load on it and you get a different rope. Uh, but if you've got a suspended load, you will not get it down on the ground in time. And when they split, they move with such speed and such weight, they will easily cut a grown man in two. Or if we're feeling fancy, it could cleave a man in twain. <laughs> so the, the, it does happen. The, the, the cable's break snaps this enormous, multi, this million pound, million dollar expensive vessel crashes onto the deck at the port of LA it, it cracks the supports underneath it cracks the uh, the the decking itself had it weighed just a little bit more it might have gone into the Pacific Ocean and uh, unloaded uh, the uh, the and because I work there I must inform you we did not take custody of it yet that wasn't our problem that's the longshoreman of Los Angeles Union uh, sometimes it's just fun to just Throw the longshoremen under the bus if you've worked with them long enough. Uh, But it was this moment to where uh, it was this enormous problem. Uh, We made money because I had to pay for our equipment on standby as they dug it out of the port. Uh, And it worked. Oddly enough, they tested it and they're like, yeah, sure, ship it to Utah. And so we did. (laughs) Uh, They don't build them like they used to. This thing, though, it, it begins to talk, it begins to make noise and uh, it was time to leave. It was time to get out of there. Those that knew about it and could recognize the sound and had heard a cable talk before knew it was time to get going. If we are doing something that is going to be a problem and it's destined for crashing, it's better to leave it sooner than later. No matter how how disastrous it is, it it can seem discouraging to be told, this is chasing the wind, this is wasting your life. But if it is gonna crash and it is gonna make a disaster, it's the wise that leave first. And if you're kind, you also tell your coworkers to run too. I, I, that fact is disputed because my dad says he did say something, and Greg says he doesn't remember, which is a convenient thing to say when it was your boss that allegedly didn't say something. So well we want to talk about if it is chasing the wind, we're gonna be looking at the several things that matter to this individual who wrote this. We're going to look at it. If these things are chasing the wind, it's better to stop now and to leave now. This book was written to people who were uh, intended, it was intended to be written not by, or read, excuse me, not by everybody, but by the ruling elite in Jerusalem, people who thought they had it together, people who thought they had their lives finished and were chasing the right things. And this point of this book is how much we chase the wind even when we're succeeding. So I'm going to read the first two uh, verses here. We'll talk about it a little bit more. The words of the teacher, Son of David, King in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Across the nation this morning, churches are getting together, and they're hearing really encouraging things. They're hearing like, you've got this because God's got you, and nothing's going to overcome us. No weapon formed against you. And here at Living Way everything's meaningless. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) You know, I would say a fork is meaningless. The flatware we have in all of our drawers, it is meaningless unless it's being used with a meal. It's completely meaningless. It's the purpose of something else that gives it purpose. And so is life meaningless if it's not paired with the one who actually has purpose if we spend our time finding out what is my purpose and what am I supposed to do, alone and within ourselves, sealed away and not connected with God, we do not recognize he is the one with purpose. The word meaningless here is used over and over again. And when I was reading about it, translators have had a hard time because they want you, the reader, to know this is the same word that was used right at the beginning. But uh, it has so many different meanings, more than just meaningless. Meaningless. It can mean breath, vapor, vapid, fading, going away. It can even mean a sense of deception, looking like one thing like a mirage. I, you know, we think about a vapor coming off of a hot drink we're about to drink, and, and think about this. Can you remember any one particular vapor, one that really stood out to you, well, how it looked, how it felt? We know what vapors look like, and we know how they feel because they all kind of mesh into one. We don't recall one from the other. We're not saying, oh, geez, I remember the 14th one that raced off my coffee coffee cup on June 5th of 2005. That's the greatest vapor I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Vapors are forgettable, always present, and they leave so quickly. So it is with uh, human history. We know that there was Romans and Greeks. We know that there was Persians. We know that there were ancient Chinese dynasties. We know of them. We don't know any of those individuals. And in the few that we do know, even their records are something that are greatly scrutinized. Was Julius Caesar a great man or a terrible man? Did Genghis Khan really accomplish as much as people want to think he did? What does a human life add when we leave behind? And these are the questions of the teacher. On part of the teacher, the authorship is that the opening of the book makes no small illusion that this is intended to be interpreted as Solomon. The second son, uh, the one that reigns after David, his father was warrior king, and he had the role of teacher king. He was different than his father. He was blessed with wisdom. God said, I will pour anything onto you, ask for. Solomon says, give me wisdom to reign. And God pours it out to such a rich level that he had unprecedented wisdom. He refers to himself as koaleth, which is a, a compound word. It can mean preacher, teacher, one that stands up and teaches in an assembly. Solomon was one who built uh, great gatherings and and joint efforts like schools around the concept of wisdom. Those schools produced books like the Song of Solomon as well as the Book of Proverbs. So whether he was writing every proverb or he was the one over that whole work, he was there working on those things. However, despite the fact that this very much wants us to see King of David, he was in Jerusalem, he uh, he reigned there. He was one of great wisdom, considered a teacher. There has been an enormous pushback that this is not, in fact, authentically Solomon. Identity started to be questioned about this author 150 years ago. They began to find new evidence that seemed to dissuade and make it look like it wasn't truly Solomon. And in fact, because most of our commentaries were written uh, over about 150 years you go over that, the consensus seems to be pretty overwhelming that Koaleth is not Solomon. They say that it it, it contains ideas of the Greek pessimists. We get the word pessimist from those philosophers. They say that there are two Persian words or two words of Persian origin that show up in this that would not have been even present in Jerusalem until the rise of the Persian Empire. And scholars have said the Hebrew is way too advanced. It is not something that you would have seen during the times of David and Solomon. This looks like almost something you would see around the time of Christ. In fact, one scholar was so confident of himself, he said, if Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew language has no history. That's a lot of confidence. The idea was is that there is a later author who took on the guise of Solomon, who wrote this kind of in-character to say one who had all things and knew all things would have felt this way about life. But uh, they should have seen the writing on the wall with this one. Ecclesiastes is clear. There's nothing new under the sun. We want to find new things. We want to see uh, and leave our mark behind. And for centuries, they must have thought to themselves, for centuries, they said, this is Solomon. But I've looked into it. I'm going to say something new. And I'm going to start something new. People are going to remember my name as saying, this is who it really is. Because you know what's interesting? Modern scholarship doesn't back up almost all of their claims They look into it and they realize that because this was written for a different sect of Hebrews, it was written in a different, more advanced dialect. They know that Persian words were already in the Levant at this period because other languages were using them. And so there are, of all of the claims that are raised up, none of them are sufficient enough to make us think this is not Solomon. It's amazing that we can read a book that is about the way that time stays and the way that, that God's the only one that makes change and we would want to look at it and read, we're going to make a new thing. We're going to say a new thing. I'm going to establish something new in Ecclesiastes, the very book that corrects me. It would be like reading Romans and using it to defend your legalism. This is just a bizarre thing. It's important that when we read Scripture, we let it read us, we let it go first and foremost, and we let it change us. That it would radically be able to form us Ancient truth still seems to be new 150 years after all this was thrown into question. There's nothing new under the sun. We can't say for certain if Solomon really, really did write it, but there's no credible reason to believe he didn't. The title of today's talk is Nothing New Under the Sun. Picking up where we left off, I want to read a bit more. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place the streams have come from. There they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye uh, eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything new of which one can say, look, this is something new. It has already been long ago, uh, or it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. There is something inside of all of us that wants to be significant, to do something and to leave something behind remarkable. There's, in fact, a song I remember I listened to when I was a teenager by the band Delirious, and I'm not picking on Delirious, I still like them, but it was a Christian band, and they said, uh, I'm going to be a history maker in this land, and there's something inside of us that wants to do that, wants to leave something incredible behind. We want to leave something behind, and the pessimistic mortality of this opening passage can be very discouraging. But what is, what is the things that we should leave behind, and what are those things that matter? I remember I was talking to my predecessor, Mike Wilday. He was the youth pastor here, and he went to Life Pacific University, which is our denomination's school, their college. And there used to be a tradition there that the seniors would play at least one extremely elaborate prank on the freshmen. And it would happen every year. It was like, Pastor, you got to do it when you're a senior. And they would be over-the-top elaborate pranks. And he told this story because when he got there, the people who were seniors, their freshman year had a prank played on them that was so brutal that it actually ended right there. (laughs) They stopped it, and it's never been back. You go to life, if you send your kids to life or you were to go there and go to school, that tradition's over. And here's what happened. It was nighttime, all the seniors got out of bed very quietly, and they laid their clothes out on the bed, like their pants down here and their shirt up here. They turned out all the lights, and in Life Pacific, in the central like quad lawn area, there's this huge, white, bright cross. The seniors put on white robes, they took trumpets, they blew them, and they declared the day of the Lord to convince the freshmen that they had missed the rapture. And there was enough of them that woke up delirious enough that they burst into tears and were weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. They thought they missed it. And it was so bad that it's over now. Like those seniors did such a bad prank, they killed it. Amy Simple McPherson founded that school in the 20s. And I'm talking, this is like class of 94. They put an end to it. That's a prank. Well, I guess we all want to leave something behind, but what is, it, is it really worth it? Imagine that if at the end, these are, by the way, these guys, these seniors, these are pastors in our movement. These, this could be David Eddy, our district supervisor for all I know. If at the end of their life, these men were to ask the angels, what, what did we leave behind? What was significant? And the angels said, you killed that tradition at the school. They don't do it anymore. I would imagine those seniors would say, then it was all meaningless. That's all I have to show. We can morph tradition and practices, but is that really the kind of change and the things we want to leave behind that our spirit cries out for, really wants to do? Have you ever considered the day after your death what that will look like? The day after I die, the sun is going to rise and people are going to get up they're going to take a shower, they're going to shave, they're going to go to work. Traffic will be on the same road as it always been on before. Life is going to go on. Can I accept that? Can you accept that? And what kind of legacy do we leave behind as it goes on? What do we say about the forgotten saints that paved the way for us? I mean, we hardly know any of them. You think about it. We might be able to list a few. We could say, well, we know Augustine of Hippo, and we know uh, Charles Spurgeon, we know—I uh, wrote three—and John Wesley. Those are even. I'm like, what? Who was it again? Oh yeah, that Puritan. Um, we can. We might be able to list a few, but we don't know all of them. We don't even know the ones that led up entirely to your own lineage, like the people that came and spoke with you and and. and and had a relationship with you, the people that went before them, those that did the living and the dying, the working, the teaching, the, everything that led up to us, we do not know who they are. The bulk of them are forgotten. But I would say that the opening of this book is very accurate. They're forgotten under the sun, but they're not forgotten above the sun. There is very much an under the sun concept in the book of Ecclesiastes, that a fork is meaningless without the meal. And that we are forgotten down here. Life is meaningless in the natural world if it is being attempted to be fulfilled in the natural world. It is only life, it is only hope that we find in the undying world that is undying hope. That which is continuing on. It would seem, if we understand it that way, to look like entire madness, to try to find hope in a world that's fading. It is not humanity by itself that makes humanity worth it all. There's something else, something agent, ancient, something that goes far before us, but the spirit of the age looks for something new. Verse 9 and 10 said, uh, uh, What has been will be again, and... Uh, What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? It was already long ago. Uh, It was already here long ago. It was before our time. I uh, was watching. I spent way too much time scrolling on Facebook. I'm just going to indict myself now. I've done too much of that. And there was this video that came up, and I remember I actually watched it when it came out in 2007. There was rumor that Apple was going to make a phone, and I thought, that's so stupid, I have to see this. And so I watched it live, and there was a clip from it when Steve Jobs, he's dressed up in his little turtleneck and black pants. He looks like a 007 villain from the 70s. And he's trying to show us, like the, and he goes, when you have a picture, you take your two fingers and you pinch open to zoom in, and you pinch, out, you pinch like this to zoom out everybody loses their mind. And that's by far the funniest thing about watching an Apple keynote, is the weird times people applaud. People get so excited for the dumbest things. There was a time where they changed the animation when you refresh your mailbox, it stretches and then releases instead of just spinning. And everyone's like, oh! And so that's, people, people are freaking out over pinch to zoom. And the title on the video, the guy said, uh, we forgot what a big deal this was. And I thought, how odd. Because I watched that video and I had a very different take. We way overestimated what a big deal that was. That did not make that much of a difference. If you had uh, too much obsession over what other people looked like, your own body dysmorphia, you had your own interest with photos, going like this changed nothing. A little gesture did very little. The author Philip K. Dick, who wrote the book, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, when it was made into a movie more aptly called Blade Runner, um, Yeah, the original is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I can see why uh, they did a different title. He had a guiding philosophy that he talked about with which he wrote all of his books. He believed that technology would not change man one iota. I hope nobody broke a bone and it was that loud. We good? Okay. He believed that technology wouldn't actually change anybody, but it would enhance what we already were. And so for the generosity of humanity, technology will help them be more generous. For the courageous of humanity, technology will aid them in being more courageous. In the same way that uh, people might have been brave before the sword, they become more brave after the sword. However, in all of his novels, as with all the other ways, that it also affected people, if people were violent before the sword, they were all the more violent for the inventing of it that technology won't change us. It'll just kind of enhance the way that we do stuff. The internet was said to bring all humanity together. And now that we're, what, 30 years into this, I'm kind of wondering if it was a very good idea for all of us to get together. (laughs) The internet uh, has certainly got us more involved with each other, but the idea of bringing us together, as in creating unity, is not really evident. Things seem to be going the same way they did before. Nations liked messing with each other before, and now we just have nations doing things like hiring hackers to shut down our fuel system or to steal designs. The Internet has done as much to increase our circle of friends as it has our enemies. How many relationships have you seen get destroyed because of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, for those of you young enough to have a TikTok? TikTok. How much division has arisen because we now have at our fingertips any research that will back up any opinion we have? Everybody has facts that they can share. And so we are not any more less right or wrong. All we have done is wasted more time to prove that we believe whatever we believed before. I wouldn't say maybe Philip K. Dick was right about everything, but he may have been right about the Internet. We are the same humanity. We just have new tools to do things we've been doing since ancient times. This is the biblical definition of nothing new. That we might read that and we think, well, things are so different. I mean, Sam was talking about 150 years ago, just a minute ago. Think about how different things are now. Cars, electricity, better coffee. But in the economy of heaven, changing things is something that changes that matters and endures. The internet is proving to be a really rather meaningless. It's no better for hell than it is for heaven. It's just simply more noise. I want to show you an image real quick. This is a a biblical concept of how they saw time, the wheel of time. Bring up my wheel. No wheel? Really? Oh, that's the one that was blank. Hmm, technical stuff. All right. Imagine a wheel's up there. Mm Mm-hmm. And the wheel has got spokes. It's an old wheel, okay? And the, the, we have this idea, especially since the Enlightenment in the West, that time is linear. It, just keep, it goes in new directions. Things are unprecedented. We keep saying that with the pandemic. This is unprecedented. It's literally not unprecedented. We have pandemics all the time. Uh, we, the fact that we went 100 years without one is quite the accomplishment. Um, so we have this idea of linear time. But the biblical world, they had more of an idea of cyclical time. Not that things would actually repeat or that things were written in that sense, but things tend to go in a certain sequence and they repeat uh, a pattern. They repeat trends, even if they show up in new faces and in new ways. And so as one rolls, a spoke touches the ground, and that's what's going on right now. And as the wheel continues to roll, another spoke is now pointed towards the ground, but eventually these trends and things will come back and land again we're seeing this with generational studies they find that you get these little generations like micro ones stuffed in there but the main pattern is intense generation and not so intense generation so let's let's look at baby boomers they were intense they had protests and flower power and they were they have very strong opinions and they tend to uh Intense generations tend to fixate on something. This thing that I'm talking about is the dividing point. It draws a line in the sand. You're with me or against me. They wear out the next generation. Generation X shows up. And, like, honestly, we just want to sit around, drink Pepsi, and watch Seinfeld. Like, that's what we want to do. And so Gen X is very laid back. They tend to be. They had a lot less protest. Like, eh, whatever. And then the millennials show up. and, And millennials and boomers are going to hate this, they're the same generation. They are so similar. They, the, the wheel went around. It landed again. You have another intense generation that still fixates on an issue, draws a line in the sand, says, you're with me or against me. They want to argue. They want to debate. And it's why the whole fight is just going right over Gen X, is right over their head. They, they're not weighing in. This is boomers versus millennials. And uh, being a youth pastor, I can say Gen Z showed up. They are so chill. They really are. I was at a youth event where I saw one uh, millennial debating with a, with like a group of Gen Zers, and they're like, okay, you're getting too worked up. Just calm down. Like, no, no, that's, that's, you're, you're giving, you're giving way too many labels. No, you're being too divisive. Stop it. And like, isn't the, isn't the stereotype of teenagers that they're emotional, and yet I'm not seeing this playing out. They're so chill. I, I actually, the last few years in youth ministry have been so nice. I've found that, I tend to not be intense, so for me, I'm like, if they're 20 years older than me or 20 years younger, I know we're going to get along. They are chill as heck. Uh, now, I don't mean to pick on millennials and boomers because those generations that are more passionate, they tend to also be very driven and do stuff at the same time. So I'm not going to poo-poo my generation or the, or the boomers. Everybody has their space, and God has a reason for the way things go. But we have found that there is a pattern, and it does repeat. We are at a point in society we've seen many times before where people are convinced that the new and what's coming up is going to fix everything. This happened during the Pax Romana. It was a time when Rome conquered everything. They ruled everything. Everything seemed to be safe. And there's this idea that the past has been killed, and we are now moving into the Pax Romana. This is going to be a new era. The Enlightenment era was very much like the one we live in. It was this idea that we have come to new understanding, we're going to doubt old superstitions, and everything's going to get fixed and perfect, despite the fact that that era unleashed a level of unending war that is almost unprecedented by any other time. We are at a time to where technology has advanced so fast that we are really very convinced that the future is going to be dramatically different and the cycle's over and we're not going to go in loops anymore. It's interesting, for those that are so concerned with cl- global climate change, the main solutions they give is like, we need to buy electric cars, or we need to develop new technologies, which is kind of silly that you would buy and shop your way out of it, because if the numbers are right, isn't that the problem in the first place? Like, the people that are, that are concerned, I know it's a divisive thing, I'm not taking a side, I just mean for those who truly are behind this concept, the solution we give is so much the, the spirit of our time. We will shop and we will buy our way out of this. We are going to get new things. We're going to develop new stuff, new technology. Things will be different. We're going to be very different. No one has ever before been like us. We're not repeating a cycle. We're starting something new. This is something that has gone on many times before. The obsession that something new is going to change everything. You know, they, they look at... a. Uh, there's all of these ancient kings, particularly Assyrian kings that spent, they had courts full of people who had one job. Find something really amazing someone's doing right now that no one's ever done, and let's put it on the annuals of my records in the kingdom so we can say in my time, the largest bridge ever was built. And they tried to find all of these ways. Why are those temples so big? Why did they want up each other? Because they were obsessed with doing something no one had ever done before. There's this interesting story the seeking to do something no one's done before. In the book of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18, Absalom, the rebellious son of David, who attempts to take his throne, builds himself a monument. He knows he's going to have no kids. He's losing the civil war, and he decides he's going to build this grand monument because it's the only thing that will leave behind in his name. And so Absalom's monument is built. It's amazing. His father loved God and pursued him. We can credit him and his school and everything he built with the book of Psalms. His brother, who became king after him, after he was killed, is Solomon. He was gifted by God with wisdom. We can credit his school with the school of wisdom, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And for Absalom, he built a monument. He pursued the wind, he chased it hard, and his life is wasted we can be incredibly productive in the absolute wrong areas. A while ago, we did these uh, personality profiles, my wife and I, and there was this quote about my wife's personality I love, absolutely accurate. Uh, People like my wife, there is no limit to what they can accomplish when they're supposed to be doing something else. (laughs) Like, I will come home and the floors are mopped? Like, everything deep-cleaned, all of the cabinets have been dug out, put back in. The kids' clothes are folded, Brie condo method, where they're folded just right, so you open the drawer, you see everything. And I'll walk in, and I'll think, gee, I wonder what she was supposed to do today. <laughs> like, what piece of paper did she not sign? <laughs> Humanity's really similar. We talk about things like aqueducts the Romans built, and... Uh, Democracy that was replanned and put on such a grander scale by our country. I mean democracy may have existed before but the US tested it to see if it could work on such a grand scale and not just one city. There are things that it seems so significant and we can be incredibly productive when we're supposed to be doing something else, but at the end of our life those things are chasing after the wind. Wasted like a monument. Indeed, there's really only one time you can find in Scripture really clearly that someone does something new. And it's said to be a new thing. And it does not belong to anyone who is entirely human. Revelation 21, 5 through 6. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. Indeed, there will come a time in human history when we look back and we will say every single thing was meaningless except for the places that Jesus put his hand to it. Through his people, in his people, for his people. We will sound just like the Apostle Paul. We counted all for loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Hope doesn't come from new things. There's something so, it's, it's laid so deep inside of us that something's coming up and it will change. And it could be technology, but the spirit of the age is this idea that something's coming and it's gonna fix everything for me. Political movements, some change will happen when we all begin to see each other and we can all come together and we do not want to embrace that there is a cycle. Hope is not found in the future and that everything is going to work out just fine. There will be another pandemic. It could happen in 10 years. It could happen in 200 years. There's going to be more civil unrest in this country. There's going to be more things that will take place. And we so much want to believe we've sorted it. Hope doesn't come from just a nameless future. Hope comes from an ancient source. Something that is no less available to us than the times we think of the past. We say, I wouldn't want to live there. That was so much worse than now. Is it not grace to have a vain pursuit, a chasing of the wind, slapped out of your hand? That the things we're looking for, the things that we think will make us complete, whether that's buying your first home, buying a new home, retiring well, sending your kids off to the perfect college, getting the next thing handled, paying off debt, these things are not moral or immoral. They're amoral. But the real thing, the, the whisper inside of you for something grander, something greater, the thing that you're projecting onto the future and what you think is going to come through, it wouldn't it be good to know now it won't? You'll get it in your hands, and it is not going to feel like the way you think it's going to feel. And it's not going to be what you thought it was going to be. I would rather know that now than when I'm breathing my last breath. I would rather be able to hear the talking and the cables and understand this thing's about to go over. Whether it is in uh, what we're counting ahead of us, hopelessness, satisfaction, joyfulness over depression, richness over poorness, the things that we think are going to impact all of that and the cry within us, is not the future that we often are counting on. The whisper is something so much more ancient. And the whisper goes beyond everything, that its fulfillment is not found under the sun, but over it, above it. Something that we do not have to wait on and it is worth pursuing now. It's ancient hope that's calling, and the spirit of the age wants us to think that it is an immediate hope that we are going to find, and that every day we get a step closer to the glorious future when things will get better. Eternal hope is calling, and it's time to abandon one pursuit for another. It would be good to abandon the thing that you love so much and you want so bad right now, than to keep going for it and finding out that it is nothing. Don't you think it's amazing that celebrities who have gained so much and succeeded so much have a much higher suicide rate per capita than the rest of us? How disillusioning would it be to give up everything, sacrifice friends, leave everything you knew to finally get hold of it and to get the thing you thought you wanted and to find out that it was empty and colorless? It wasn't before he was famous and at the top of his game that Kurt Cobain killed himself. It was when he was the most famous rock star in the world that he felt like this life was so empty he just wanted to leave it. It is in time to end certain pursuits and to chase other things that you we identify and say, Lord, am I chasing after the wind? Did I hear your call and did I put it onto to something else? Am I thinking that I'm going to be able to get it under the sun? Do I realize this is over and that it's available to me starting right now? It would be important to make your life about that pursuit and finding our purpose in the one that is the one that has purpose, our maker. I'm going to pray, and what I would want you to do is, as I'm praying, I want you to be thinking about what are the things that you feel convicted is your wind chasing, the thing that you're going after, the thing that you keep thinking is going to come through and to let God show you the reality of those things that it's not going to give you the peace, the the tranquility, the fulfillment, the satisfaction that your spirit is longing for. Everything is meaningless under the sun. Things that have been done have been done before under the sun. We have a hope that's above all these things that comes from the eternal. Let's pray. Lord, today I ask that you would be moving in our hearts right now, but the things that we've chased down and that we've wanted... Lord, let us identify that we are not alone in that. And it's the, it's the unaloneness in the vain pursuit that can be scary. Because the spirit of the age tells us that we can get our way out of this by buying and selling and getting into something different, that it will fix everything. Lord, open our spiritual ears that we would hear the cable snapping. Open our spiritual eyes that we would see the dead end of this road that it is meaningless. It is no more useful to heaven or for hell. Whether we have it or not isn't going to satisfy all things. Lord, let us put it aside that if you have those for us, you have them for us, but we are not counting on that to make us whole and satisfied. God, I pray for an incredibly deeper faith that in everything we would look to you, we would chase you, that we would take on a new pursuit to pack light, to leave now, and to move quickly in pursuing you. Finding a hope that is above all things, not under the sun, but above all things that is unchanging. Lord, I thank you that you are unchangeable. And because you are unchangeable, you can actually enact change. Or we are changeable, and we can change our minds so quickly. And we seem that we can't accomplish anything, Lord. You know what you have planned for us. You know what's ahead of us. You know the loving kindness, the little gifts you want to give us along the way. But you also know the ultimate goal, where we're going for and where we hunger and thirst for in our spirit. You said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Lord, let us hunger and thirst for you, for your kingdom, for your name, for the relationship we have with you, that we would see ourselves tied up in your purpose and that we would be filled in Jesus' name. Help us abandon the pursuit of the wind as we pursue you. We thank you, Lord, and in your name we pray. Amen.